0: Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, October 13th, and today Dylan Byers is here to talk about talent tensions inside the New York Times. The paper has some big name stars with big opportunities making big money, but also plenty of journalists who feel like they too should have a shot at fame. Dylan digs into a long-standing conundrum facing newsrooms in the age of social media. What comes first, the brand or the reporter? And later on, Eric Gardner talks about his big scoop about Bill Murray and what exactly he did that led to the shutdown of the film Being Mortal and ultimately a hefty settlement with a young female staffer paid by Murray. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody, and welcome to the powers that be. John Kelly and I have been mindful of the fact that we always steal Dylan Byers reporting for Media Monday. So we're trying to talk to Dylan (laughs) later in the week to hear what's on his mind, to get ahead of his stories on this podcast so we don't chew up (laughs) what he's doing without him having a voice. Anyway, Dylan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And apologies to people listening. I feel a little under the weather. I don't have the cocoa, as my friend uh, (laughs) Kurt calls coronavirus, but... Uh, a little scratchy throat here, Dylan. I want to talk to you about the New York Times, the newspaper of record, the Gray Lady. When we were talking before recording this, you called that institution August, which you know feels about as appropriate as any word to describe the New York Times. The New York Times is a hugely successful business right now, and yet, as they have navigated the internet era over the last fifteen years, they've you know run into some headaches here and there. One of those headaches that's flared recently feels like around talent. Um, you have People who have become not just like journalism stars, but like legitimate stars. I feel like Maggie Haberman is the biggest name there. Um, She's got a new book out about Trump, Confidence Man. And they sort of exist under their own byline. They have their own presence and fame on social media. Um, And then you have reporters who aren't, you know, stars. Maybe they want to be. Can you talk to me a little bit about what kind of tension is manifesting there between some reporters who, you know, might have bigger ambitions than their? current place in the world
1: when it comes to new york times two things that are just sort of indisputably true one it is far and away the dominant news organization when you're talking about print digital media it has 1700 employees produces arguably some of the best and most influential journalism and it over the course of the last decade has hired many of the most notable journalists in the industry. I recall being at Politico from 2011 to 2015. When I showed up, Maggie Haberman was an all-star. Jonathan Martin was an all-star. There was Alex Burns. There was Ken Vogel. There was, you know, for two months, there was Ben Smith. By the time I left, Maggie had gone to The Times. J-Mart had gone to The Times. Burns had gone to The Times. Vogel had gone to The Times. Ben Smith went to BuzzFeed, but eventually he ended up at the New York Times. And of course, you can say this for many of the many notable journalists from many publications. David Farenthold went from the Post to the Times. Kara Swisher found a home at the Times momentarily. So there's this sense that the New York Times, while it's growing as a business, while it is, is far outpacing its competitive set, I mean, it's no longer even competitive. There's just the Times. At the same time, You have this thing where if you talk to people who work at the Times or used to work at the Times, there is a a refrain that you will hear, which is that people at the Times are miserable or they are restless, that is born of feeling like, unless you are a Maggie Haberman or unless you are an Andrew Ross Sorkin, that your career is being stifled. So you might come to the Times and grow and build some name recognition for yourself, But then you sort of hit this ceiling at which you can't get off your beat, you can't make more money, you can't pursue outside projects that might be lucrative for you. And all of this is happening at a time when the industry seems to be trending toward journalistic organizations built around brand name journalists. That is is one of the conceits of Puck, it is one of the conceits of Semaphore, Whatever the case, there's a feeling that even by the standards of traditional news organizations, the Times is ultimately all about the Times itself and not about the journalists whose bylines appear in its pages. And this has been a source of frustration for a lot of journalists. And so what we're seeing is a sort of drift. We're seeing, you know, Ben Smith left to start semaphore, Kara Swisher left, Jay Mart recently left, Alex Burns recently left, Neil Irwin went to Axios and, and and a number of other Times reporters went to Axios as well. This is not the first time that the Times has had to endure this where people leave because they feel stifled and they feel like they wanna be bigger. But the fact that the Times keeps running into this where there is this feeling that you have all of these reporters who think that they can be bigger than the Times or think that they can at least, they don't need the Times to see their careers grow. The Times is enduring that again and how they wrestle with that and whether or not they can adapt and find ways to be more creative in terms of catering to and placating their talent is going to be very interesting.
0: Yeah. The New York Times still feels like the best perch you can get to in journalism. And even within the New York Times, there are opportunities to do audio or, you know, maybe experiment with video maybe, or do just platform stuff that's different. And you can still take book leave and write books. Like, Maggie did or Jody Cantor did where would they go that's better and what would they do that's better? I mean, like you don't just like wake up snap your fingers one day and like write a screenplay yeah. and get to be really rich like like Maggie's a great example before anyone on Twitter ever fucking heard of Maggie <laughs> with Donald Trump like attacking her all the time like she had like a pre-existing like 20 year career in journalism you know and like sometimes it's just people hit hit their stride or at least make the big bucks or get really famous like at some midpoint in their career so it kind of feels like maybe a kind of impatience
1: i think it's an impatience and i think the impatience is brought on by the time success and what i mean by that is that because it has been so successful and because it has consolidated so much power in the industry and doesn't really have rivals outside of you know for a moment at least the washington post you have All of this talent and there there can only be, you know, not everyone is going to get an Andrew Ross Sorkin like deal where they get their own sort of standalone website within the New York Times and their own, you know, new influential newsletter. Not everyone is going to get a a podcast like a Steed or Kevin Roos. Not everyone is going to get the sort of Maggie treatment. But there are a lot of really, really talented journalists who feel like they deserve that and feel like because the New York Times can only make the Maggies and the Sorkins happy, that they would do better to go elsewhere. What the Times would say is, look, we can create these opportunities, right? We, we've given Steve and Kevin Roos these podcasts. Maybe there are a hundred people at the Times who believe they should have their own podcast. Needless to say, the Times isn't going to give a hundred journalists their podcast, and if they did, I can't imagine that more than three or four of them would be all that successful. I understand the Times approach here. I also understand why, for the sake of the organization, they don't want to cater to people who believe that they are Maggie Haberman level journalists. Nevertheless, that frustration is real. And if you're someone who has spent 10 years at the Times or 15 years at the Times working on the same beat and you're not getting that treatment, And you're looking at, again, places like a semaphore puck, which are saying, hey, come here, we're going to build the whole brand around you. I understand why they hit those levels of frustration. That is the sense I get from people at times. There are a lot of turf wars, right? There's a lot of, what are you allowed to do? What are you not allowed to do? And everything is reviewed. You can't step outside of your beat. You can't work on projects that aren't approved. I think the frustration there is really real. So too real is the is the sense that times might have a little bit of wisdom in deciding to only bet on a few horses at a time.
0: I remember during the Palin campaign, when I was covering Palin, I think Julie Bosman was assigned to Palin. And then she wanted to be like, I'm done with politics. I want to go cover books. (laughs) And they let her go do it. And like Adam Nagurney, like covered politics for a long time. He's like, I'm kind of done doing this stuff. I want to move to California. And they let him go do it. But that's a, that's a different dynamic though. That's like, I'm tired of my beat. I wanna like use some different muscles and go somewhere else within the times. Um, And this feels like a fascinating dynamic the times is gonna have to deal with for many years to come. This isn't going away anytime soon.
1: And I think what they're gonna have to decide, because for a long time, times was the end all be all. And then you get these waves, 2013 with the Nate Silvers and the David Pogues and the Brian Stelters, where people are saying, you know what? I don't need the times. I can build my own brand outside the times. And they leave. And the question for the paper is, are they going to change something about how they handle talent and what they allow talent to do in order to retain those people? Or are they content with losing the J-Mart's and the Alex Burns's because A, they've still got the Maggie Habermans, and B, they know that a new generation of reporters will come up believing that you need to pass through the times in order to achieve that august level of influence and sophistication.
0: Well, Dylan, I'm glad you're here building a brand with me at the intersection of <laughs> Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. Thanks so much, man. We'll continue to come to you on the New York Times and everything else media, hopefully at this time in the week. <laughs> so John and I don't steal your shit. Have a good weekend, man. It's all right, man. When we come back, Ben Landy talks to Eric Gardner about the secret Bill Murray settlement.
2: Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Eric Gardner in the studio with me in New York. Hey,
3: Eric. Hey, how's it going?
2: You had a fascinating scoop earlier this week revealing for the first time exactly what it was that Bill Murray did on the set of Being Mortal, this new production from Aziz Ansari that got the picture shut down. We knew that production had been halted because of some kind of bad behavior on set. We didn't know exactly what it was. You were able to uncover for the first time what really happened there. So
3: for people who haven't already read the story, what is the story? Sure. I mean, the uh, productions stopped and we knew that there was inappropriate behavior and we know that Bill Murray had kind of apologized for it, but for months and months and months, no one could really crack it. So what I reported was a couple of things. One was that, uh, that Bill Murray, uh, kissed this woman unwillingly. And uh, they had masks on while, while it was happening. And it was unclear whether it was some sort of physical comedy bit or something like that. But she didn't welcome it. And uh, she was horrified and she objected. The, the other big thing that I reported was that afterwards they went through mediation on it. They went, went through negotiations and and uh, he basically paid her. He paid her $100,000 for her silence. And he also paid... So that she would waive any claims so that the production would resume. What was the point of the settlement? Was that in part to get the production back on track? Yeah, absolutely. I think there were there were a couple of things. First of all, Bill Murray, from what my sources tell me, felt, you know, legitimately awful about what had happened. And, you know, he he did want to make things right. And so as part of that he agreed to pay her but the other uh, you know main component of it was that you know everyone felt awful that this had shut down the production that a lot of people lost their jobs and you know for whatever concern there might be on the part of searchlight that moving forward would expose them to liability the settlement was supposed to take care of that by the women saying i won't sue you if this goes forward so they were trying to basically solve Searchlight's concern by coming to this settlement. We should say that, that
2: Murray is obviously a sort of beloved generational icon. He had this renaissance in the 2000s and 2010s, probably starting with the Lost in Translation movie and then a string of appearances in the Wes Anderson movies. And he also had this reputation as having sort of Wes Anderson-esque behavior offset that became sort of legendary, where he would show up at parties and weddings. And so he, he developed this sort of beloved off-screen persona as well. But I have to say, I wasn't entirely surprised by your reporting. I think we all know there have been various stories about Bill Murray that have gone around about behavior that is borderline, that is inappropriate. And of course, this also gets to the larger question that is still being untangled in Hollywood these days post me to around behavior that is sort of in this gray area. Obviously, what Bill Murray did is gross, It was flatly inappropriate. This woman herself was extremely uncomfortable. You said she was she was horrified by what happened he believes he was just joking around. Do you have a sense of what the studio's perspective on his behavior was and, and how did that inform what their response was here?
3: It's definitely was a situation that, you know, went up the chain at Searchlight's parent company, Disney, and they had a big decision to make. Now, you know, I am an analytic reporter, but not a judgmental reporter. And, you know, one of the very, very trickiest things for reporters in my position, especially in the entertainment industry these past few years, is, is trying to figure out, you know, what sort of calculus is at play when it comes to studios and their decisions about talent and misconduct allegations? Is it that they're reacting to the behavior itself or are they reacting to the public's reaction or potential reaction to, to, to uh, it, you know, is this an image thing? basically, or, you know, already trying to send a message. And it's very unclear. It's very ambiguous. I'm not, I'm not even sure that the studios themselves know what the line is on this sort of thing. But when they identify a, a situation, uh, you know, they, you know, sometimes rush to do something about it if they can, especially if it's if it's known and, and it gets out there. And then it becomes a lot tougher to to move forward, to move on. Here we have that situation where we see that it's clearly not just a legal situation. They might have gotten a settlement. There might not have been any liability to move forward, but still they are still being careful and still saying like, we're not going to move forward here. Do you think that Searchlight would have reacted differently if they were owned by their previous parent company, Fox, instead of their current parent company, Disney? I think it's possible. I think that, that you know, clearly uh, Fox was, was owned by Rupert Murdoch and Murdoch has uh, a lot uh, more latitude when it comes to, to mores uh so it's it's possible that you know the only thing that would have mattered to the murdochs or to fox during those days was is this production going to make money and if so you should move forward with it you know clearly disney falls on the more conservative realm uh conserve not not in political ideology but conservative when it comes to business approach they're very careful it doesn't surprise me at all that they stopped everything here.
2: Yeah, it doesn't seem like a stretch to think that for Disney, it might not be worth the reputational hit to resume production and have to deal with the fallout and the managing around the messaging of this movie as they put it out into theaters or to Hulu or wherever it was going to go. Do you think there's a chance that this movie moves forward or is it just ultimately not worth it for Bob Chapek at Disney to court that kind of controversy?
3: I don't think it's going to go forward at Disney. I think that they've basically made their decision already, even though that they haven't like clearly expressed it. But it's possible that that it moves forward uh, elsewhere. I I mean, Aziz Ansari himself is a very respected figure in the uh, artistic communities. There could be interest there. Bill Murray himself is a big star. The budget itself is 20 million. I think that's, that's, you know, kind of the, the tough one here because this is a, you know, kind of a prestige picture. The market for those sorts of movies these days has, has really suffered. If you're just streaming a $20 million movie, it's very difficult. So, I mean, it's possible that someone else picks it up, buys the project, and it moves forward. On the other hand, it's it's certainly not a given.
2: Do you think there's any other litigation to come in this case? Or is everyone involved just ready to see this thing sort of disappear or move on?
3: It's possible there could be more litigation or probably more precisely more arbitration ahead. Disney ha- also has to to make a decision about whether it's going to pay the stars of the film. They don't unilaterally have rights to just walk away from contracts. They could, you know, argue that there was justification here that say Bill Murray himself breached the contract, but you know, that's an argument to be made. And if they draw a hard line here and decide, you know, we're not gonna pay you, we're not gonna pay anyone for this, that could open up several more rounds of kind of quiet litigation behind the scenes about what happened and, who is justified in, in in taking their actions.
2: Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens, not just with the movie, but also with Bill Murray's career. I think we've seen a sort of mixed results in Hollywood in terms of how male stars who have been accused of abuse or bad behavior have fared in, in the public eye post Me Too. Obviously there's, there's guys like Danny Masterson who are on trial now, Weinstein back on trial, but also other beloved figures like Brad Pitt, Johnny Depp, who, who have been accused of, of
3: terrible behavior and and still have legions of fans. And Louis C.K., you know, here we see a comedian. He was accused of pretty uh, gross misconduct. And, you know, for a while he went away. He said that, you know, he needed time to think. But then a few years later, he's out on the road. He's doing shows again. Uh, You know, he's starting to appear. You know, we we see, you know, some comebacks from stars who, uh, you know, go through this sort of thing. Maybe not at the level that they were once at, but... uh,